Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Well, I'm very happy to welcome to the tent today Father Ken Tanner and Dr. Chris Green. I was thinking a while ago that although this is called tent theology, to be honest, we often don't really have theology on here, do we? We often have we have climate scientists and musicians and uh, actors and filmmakers and writers and all sorts of great people. But I think it's time to put some theology back into tent theology, which is why I reached out to these two gentlemen who I have never met. So listeners, you're going to hear me meeting some people for the first time on this recording, which is a really odd way to start. Uh, a podcast, I have to say, to, to meet some people on a podcast. I've never done this before. So I hope that they'll end up being nice people. I hope they'll end up being good guys. I hope there's uh, the only swearing will come from me. We'll see what happens. I don't know. But uh, Ken and Chris, uh, welcome to the podcast. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, why you're here and why what piqued my interest in the first place. But first of all, Ken, where, where are you calling in from? And what's your context? Where are you? Where are you in? this for? Yeah, I'm just north of Detroit in Michigan, in the United States. I've been pastor of an Anglican adjacent congregation for 16 years here. The Anglican scene is quite interesting in America, um, as you probably, some of your listeners may know. And um, so I'm, I'm a part of a, a, a group that, you know, I came up Pentecostal, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, and um, long story short, started encountering the church fathers in my early 20s, and uh, this led me into um, a more uh, sacramental realm of, you know, uh, Christianity. Anyway, I've been pastoring here for uh, the last 16 years. And Chris, what's your story? Where are you calling in from, and what's your work context? Also, and... Like Father Ken, raised Pentecostal, still work in that world, even though I'm ordained and as he is ordained in a kind of continuing Anglican communion, not the same communion, but a similar, similar one. So yeah, lots of lots of overlap in our stories and friends, interests, so on. <laughs> I first became aware of you both basically through Brad Jerzak, who's a friend of this show, and listeners will be very familiar with Brad Jerzak. And I think it was through, I don't know, work he was doing on the Open Table Conference, perhaps. I don't know. But I became aware of your uh, your work, and I started following you both on Facebook and various places. How did you two meet each other? Where where does your connection start? Yeah, why don't, why don't you say, Chris, I have my own thought and my memory of it, which is that it seemed to me, you know, a number of your students were reading me on social media and it goes back, I don't know how many years. I'd have to go back. I'd go to Facebook and see. But and as I recall, I read something you had written, and at the time, I I did not know you personally. I didn't I didn't follow you online. I just found this piece and loved it. And then I found the piece that you edited for the Feshrif for Tom Odin that included the chapter by Jens. And then we I think I met in person at the conference which was six years ago, something like that. Yeah, so we met in person for the first time at a Praxis conference, which is a group of Christians um, in the you know charismatic, Pentecostal, and evangelical world sort of encountering the teachings and practices of the first Christians and trying to renew their congregations in light of all of that. And Chris was a speaker uh, at this, and uh, that was the first time we met. Um, there's definitely a connection between us in terms of Robert Jensen, who Chris has done a lot of formal work with and who I, you know, became, I was a touched on magazine for six years and became very prior to, and during that time, uh, close to Jens. And one of the things we ended up doing together, um, Chris and I several years ago was, um, the, the last that I know of the last time that, that Robert Jensen did a, uh, a, a live, you know, interview, um, and we, the guys at Crackers and Grape Juice, um, ended up broadcasting that interview, um, which me- means a lot to both of us. Um, we, we've gotten closer. Now we're doing things together in Open Table Conference and 
uh, a lot more. It it's got the, the relationship's grown into something where we're in very regular contact. I had, I hadn't realized the Robert Jensen. Are you familiar with Lincoln Harvey? Do either of you know Lincoln oh, yeah. Harvey? Yeah, yeah, Lincoln's so, a good friend. That's amazing. Knows him. I've never met him, but I know him by reputation. So Link, Lincoln is Lincoln is a good friend, former colleague. And mm. uh, in fact, when I wrote my Kierkegaard book, he's the reason I wrote my Kierkegaard biography. Wow, yeah. Because he, uh, he asked me for a biography of Kierkegaard and I gave him what I had on the shelf and he handed it back to me a week later and said, this is unreadable, it's awful. And I thought, oh boy, if Lincoln Harvey doesn't like Kierkegaard, I better do something about it. So I wrote a biography for him so that he could have something to read. <laughs> Love that. Absolutely. Yeah, and he I mean, got me onto Jen. So it's because of Lincoln. So, uh, wow, there's a connection I didn't even know existed. I thought it was all the Brad Jerzak, but it's Lincoln. Yeah, Harvey Lincoln and I are early stages of a project on preaching together. Okay. Writing about preaching together. I mean, it's, it's kept in early stages because of my failure to keep my end of the bargain. But the, yeah, I, I think so highly of Lincoln. Well, that is, that is fantastic. Yes, I, I was very jealous of Lincoln because because uh, he is such a good teacher. And so I would sit in on, I had to sit in on one of his classes as part of our staff, uh, you know, where the staff audit each other and, and you're supposed to go through the motions of checking boxes and things to make sure that the quality is high. And I just sat there seething with envy because he's so good. He was such a good teacher. <laughs> yeah, so there we are. I hear that he, he's equally great preacher, although he's pretty studious about not allowing it to be recorded. So yeah, I haven't, I haven't had the chance to, He's been resistant to being on this podcast as well, because I think being recorded is not something he likes. He doesn't he likes to be in the moment and not be captured. But anyway, we are being captured in the moment right now. What what brought us to this was um, was a was a, a, a wayward uh, Instagram message from Ken. And it was just just mentioning that he he has conversations with you sometimes, Chris. And it, it was just that sort of he just said something about oh, I, I have regular conversations with Chris Green and and. I just sent a little message to Father Ken saying, wouldn't it be nice if we could have one of those conversations? We should record one. We should see if you could get on the podcast. And it was like a joke offhanded thing and it ended up being true. And here we are. So I thought I wanted to actually do with this time together is to have a conversation. I want to listen in on you two and your conversation. I'd like to chip in, maybe be a participant MC. One of the things that I really thought I wanted to do getting you both here was you're both working in the, you've mentioned it, the Pentecostal, the charismatic uh, end of things, which is not, let's be fair, which is not a set of church cultures normally known for its theological engagement. And it's not a, a set of a church culture that, that really rewards or, or prizes its theologians either, really, let's be honest. Uh, what do you think being charismatic Pentecostal brings to the theology table? Uh, I, I think, of course, the... Pentecostal charismatic movement at this point is just impossibly diverse. I mean, I, it's, it differs not only tradition to tradition, but the community to community within each tradition. In fact, I would say it differs week to week within each community within each tradition. I mean, it's, it's impossibly complex. So I really, when I talk about being Pentecostal, I'm referring to my formation amongst these people, right? A very particular community. It's mostly a disadvantage. <laughs> I think all Christian theologians actually start you know, with, with a disadvantage because you're doing theology shaped by a tradition that you've learned from people who are deeply wounded and confused. And, and so I, I think the first thing to say about it is you, you can't do theology from nowhere. Everybody, anyone who's trying to do theology does so having been formed in a tradition and that is always, in a sense, a, a disadvantage. It just matters which disadvantages you begin with, right? And so I, I, I don't think, I think Jens is the one who said, you know, every, every theologian should be embarrassed about their own tradition. If you hear that in the right sense of humor, if you hear that in Jens' uh, sense of humor, I think, I think it cuts to something really true. So, you know, for me, saying that I'm a Pentecostal is, first of all, just acknowledging I've been shaped by people who've taught me what it means to be Christian. These particular men and women, these churches have been the ones where I've learned to pray. I've learned to read scripture. I want, first of all, just to acknowledge that, right? That I, that I come, as Rowan Williams says, you know, that I, I come with a debt. Right? I have a debt to these people and to the tradition that they are serving. I think if, I'm, if I were going to talk about 
what gifts these people have given, I think the most important one, hands down, is a kind of openness to the God of surprise. Jamie Smith, who teaches at Calvin College, he spent some time in the Pentecostal world. He ended up writing a book called Thinking in Tongues. And in Yeah, I was going to say Thinking in Tongues. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes, it really is, I think. And there's a chapter in there which he kind of sketches what he calls the elements of a Pentecostal worldview. I think he would distance himself from that phrasing now, both the worldview phrasing and the kind of essentializing of the tradition. But in the course of that chapter, he, he does say that he thinks that what's distinctive about Pentecostalism as he's known it is this kind of openness to the surprises of God. And I think that, I think that's essentially right. I think that's the gift that this tradition has given me and to do theology from that place. Leonard Lovett, who was a Church of God in Christ theologian, he was the founding dean of the C.H. Mason Seminary, worked at Oral Roberts University for a while, did his PhD at Emory with Theodore Runyon, who was a Wesley scholar. So Lovett, says something very similar. In fact, I think Jamie is probably drawing on Lovett's work. He says, Lovett says, that theology, Pentecostal theology, is inseparably bound up with the expectation of the God who acts, right? That, that theology is really tightly bound to prayer, which of course puts it in communion with the church fathers the, and the mystical tradition in ways that most Pentecostals would not know, would not know that they're bound to that. But I think that's, that's what I discovered and what was shown to me is that this openness to the surprise of God that is kind of everywhere in the circles I grew up in actually is deeply rooted in the Christian tradition. And it shapes the way theology can and should be done. So I, I'm going on too long, but I, that's probably where I would start. Yeah, Ken, Ken, did you find that? Is there a happy relation, a happy relation between charismatic Pentecostals and church fathers? You mentioned discovering the church fathers. What, how do you see the relationship between these two forms of Christianity? It, it was embarrassment, but also affection. So there are things about my Pentecostal experience, which for both of us was fairly holiness, Pentecostal, rooted in Southern culture for both of us and um a slightly different between oklahoma and the deep south but nevertheless i would say the things that were embarrassing would be some of the enthusiasms and external holiness things you know about appearances you know and what you dressed and what you how you did your hair and whether you wore makeup or not and these kind of things which for my mother's generation was very much imposed on her, but because I come from generations of Pentecostals and before them holiness. So my grandparents' generation, you know, were walked a fair a line. Then my parents' generation were trying to walk away from that, but also were in the midst of it as well. And they gave a lot less of it to their children, you know, um, in terms of, you know, this is, we don't go to, you know, sporting events or, you know, we don't go to movies. Well, uh, you know, we, we didn't we didn't smoke or chew or drink, but we did start going to sporting events and we did start going to films and, and this kind of thing. And women wore makeup, you know, and this kind of thing. But also, you know, another key embarrassment would be just the, I mean, not necessarily embarrassment, but just the escapism that is very much, you know, present there, both in church and out of church. It's like you're to, to depart this world and this world is, it, it, there's a there's a sort of Gnosticism to it, right, where the body denying world denying um we're going to escape this to a but to the by and by and you know in time and so forth um and all of that came to a you know to a, a head as a student at Oral roberts university where you know uh, you know i just encountered you know in the charismatic movement which is i mean really different from pentecostalism right by the time i got there my parents had left Pentecostal roots and were in charismatic churches and the university itself was founded you know as a university of, of the charismatic movement and people I mean really really quality people um, from Brown and Missouri and all kinds of places went to teach there from Catholic Lutheran Methodist you know Baptist backgrounds and so forth ecumenical right but also really knew their stuff you know and and the education there was just incredible we were reading 
you know, Heschel and, um, you know, Joseph Lynch and Flannery O'Connor and Merton. And I mean, we read everybody, but the, the culture of the university religiously, spiritually was again, this kind of like, you know, world denying thing, escape from reality. And it just came to a head for me um, in a, a moment in a chapel service in 1986 when the shuttle Challenger blew up. You know, the pastor, the campus pastor, you know, we all had seen this. We got there and um, for the service and they said, you know, this tragic thing has happened. But, you know, we're going to leave that outside the walls of the service today. We're here to praise God and to lift his name high. And they launched into, you know, a bunch of music, which, you know, is fine in its own right. But wasn't it wasn't connecting with the moment, you know, there was no lament. There was no, you know, space for sorrow. And, you know, two or three bars into that song, I just sat down. I can't do this anymore. Well, in that moment... One of the, this was the only time that a theological faculty member spoke in chapel that I remember. Um, a man uh, who wrote a, a, a book called Pinnacle of the Temple, um, you know, major Pentecostal scholar, had lost his wife to cancer and um, the year before. And he got up in that same service after the hoot nanny and the songs were over, went up to the pulpit and said, I want to talk to you today about how my, you know, as my wife died from cancer, um, we came to understand that as a participation in the death of Christ and that Christ was inside our experience of suffering. We were made participants in his suffering in different ways, you know, him and his wife, and that Christ was present in our suffering. And I was like, ooh, now that's real. That's something I need to know more about. Where, what, where's that coming from, right? And and um, and from that moment, I started. You know, I, it wasn't too long after I ran across Tom Oden's book. You know, Evangelicals Not Enough, in which you know all the things that Chris was talking about. You know, flannel graphs in Sunday school, uh, deep prayer commitment, uh, personal relationship with Jesus, all the blood hymns, you know, from the 19th century and so forth, which are all beautiful and good. It's like, except they didn't speak in tongues, right? The, you know, him and Elizabeth Elliot, you know, Wheaton world evangelicals, no, no Pentecostal stuff, but all the other things that Chris and I grew up with, you know, just, you know, and the poverty and the beauty of these people and their prayer. I, I'm, I'm sure my life is still guided by the prayers of my grandparents, you know, both sides, you know, deep people of the scriptures and so forth and so on and very generous people, but also, you know, just escapism. And it, I, I, all of a sudden, you know, Tom starts talking about Irenaeus. I, I, I read later, you know, Bonhoeffer, we're seeking to escape our humanity. While we seek to escape our humanity, God becomes human and enters the real world of suffering and uh, engages with this world as it is because he loves this world as it is. He created it good. He doesn't want to just redeem my personal soul but my body and not just mine, but everyone else's and his creation. And so that's why he comes. And I was like, okay, We're, I was off to the races with the, the God who acts. Yes. I mean, this is where the Pentecostal God who acts yes. meets the church father's incarnational theological apparatus. Yeah. Right? And you're off to the races. So you did not leave behind. I mean, you are still are a, a, a priest in a charismatic denominational tradition. Yeah. I, I am trying to do my life in continuity with the faith of my my parents, my grandparents, and the communities that I was raised in, and the people who I was baptized, you know, under, and um, and who taught me to love Jesus, and um, and it, again that deep tradition of prayer, um, and yes, and seeing the connection between all of that. Donald Dayton's done some great work on this you know, of, of all of the Wesleyan holiness and Pentecostal movements, natural connection to Wesley in general um, and, and Anglicanism through Wesley, natural connection to the Eastern patristic tradition, you know? Yeah. Hey, you know, I, I was just listening. I'm, I'm, do, I'm practicing a bit of Pentecostal practice myself right now, just listening to the Holy Spirit nudge. And I think I want to ask you about something I wasn't going to, I wasn't thinking of bringing this up, but just as you're talking, Ken, I do want to ask you both about this uh, deconstruction moment that we seem to be living in, because it, it strikes me that you both are people who are not 
uh, slavishly devoted to the cultures in which you grew up. You're not denominational culture warriors. And yet you seem to have not ha have had this angry throw all your toys out of the pram moment. Or perhaps you have, I don't know. But what, where, where do you, what do you think is happening with this deconstruction moment that we live in? I'll tell you, like when I, when I do hashtags for Instagram posts and you're trying to get as many listeners or viewers as possible, if you hashtag it deconstructed Christianity, you get way more views than if you did hashtag Jesus, for example. Like there is something going on. What, what do you think is going on, Chris? Oh, I mean, I think I, I, kind of the, the macro level, I think we're experiencing the kind of inevitable blowback from unfaithfulness and misrepresentations of God, oppression, abuse. I mean, and I think that runs across the traditions. I mean, obviously, the sex abuse crisis, um, the Me Too movement, the Church Too movement, all speak to this. I mean, right now, that may even be front and center. But it isn't just about sexual abuse, you know, the scandals around people like Robbie Zacharias and others. I mean, it is, you know, the chickens coming home to roost in, in some ways for decades of deep unfaithfulness. I know you've done a lot of work, Stephen, around Christian nationalism. I, I think what we're experiencing now is the consequences of confusing allegiances and idolatrous uses of the name of God. I mean, in terms of the macro big picture experience, I think that's what's happening. I think at another level, a kind of more intimate level, and here I'll narrow my comments to my students and my friends. I won't speak nearly as broadly. I think our churches and our culture at large is just, it's a pretty thoughtless culture. And I don't want to be unfair, but in a lot of ways, our churches, in order to grow, in order to sustain themselves, have played along with that thoughtlessness. In fact, I, I sometimes tell my students that there are kind of three marks for the, the way we imagine the world and engage the world. One is that simplicity is the criterion of truth. If something's really true, it doesn't require any work of thought on my part. It just, it's obvious, it's immediate to me. And it not only is simple in that way, in meaning it's easy to see as true, it also works. And works means people are drawn to it and money results from it, right? So if it's true, you'll know it. You won't be able not to know it. And it will work. Like there will be people who agree with you and are willing to put their money where their mouth is. And then it will also be painless. It won't, it won't cost you much emotionally. And I think our churches, by and large, and again, at the risk of oversimplifying, and, I, and here I am talking about the churches I know, not all churches, but at the risk of oversimplifying even that, I think we've largely agreed to play that game, that we will present the gospel in ways that are simple and painless in hopes that it works. And I, I think that's an absolute disaster. I think it, in every way, distorts who God is and what it means to be human. It obscures the way that evil works in the world. It misleads us about what's required of us and possible for us. So I think a lot of what goes as deconstruction is just the inevitable consequences of that kind of foolish way of living, right? Like you, you will run up against it one way or another. So most of what I see being called deconstruction is just a kind of moment of clarity about this isn't true. This doesn't actually fit reality. So, you know, I, I think not always, I mean, certainly it can go wrong and can be mishandled, but a lot of, at least where deconstruction begins, it's simply a realization that what I've been told, what's been presented to me is a distortion and is distorting the way that I see the world. No, I, you know, and it's real. And um, there are a lot of people in that place. And the church, once it recognizes that it has done wrong, taught badly, practiced poorly, takes responsibility for what it has said and done and embodied and enacted. And, and, 
and starts to not lay any kind of abusive situation, not lay the blame at the foot of those who've been injured or wounded by this, but takes responsibility for itself and begins to say, how, how do we get back in touch with the God who's real and, and begin to reform our, our teaching and our practices and be patient with those who are suffering from these ill effects and uh, listen, you know, as we always need to do, you know, before we speak and um, take seriously the claims of those who are criticizing the church. You know, I think that there is also the necessary but also beautiful work of recognizing, hey, there's good news. What we were teaching and what we were practicing is not the faith as held by the first Christians, not in the way they read scripture, not in their understanding of not being, first of all, the encounter with the living God that they experienced in the flesh of Jesus and the way that completely transformed their way of reading the Old Testament and uh, radically changed the way that they thought about the poor and the sick and the prisoner and the stranger um, and created a very different kind of community in the world, a koinonia around the poor and, uh, you know, a meal and uh, a bath and all these things um, and, uh, and led to a very different vision of the way, uh, you know, of the world and of humans and of God. It, it's not, it's like all of these um, aberrations, you know, the good news is they are in fact, aberrations. And that takes a minute for some folks to, you know, trust because in the name of Jesus, we've said and done other things, you know, or they've experienced the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus and, and the teachings around him, the story of God and humanity and all this in distorted ways. And to, to trust that something that that's and that that's false and that there's something good and true and beautiful um, and the tradition takes a minute. Yeah, I mean, in terms of my personal story, Stephen, I, I do think I had a long stretch. In fact, I think I'm still in a stretch of deconstruction. But I always had a sense of nearness to God in all of that. And so it, it always felt to me, I think in general, most of the time, I, I experienced that deconstruction as God is good. And what needs to be reworked in me is how do I think about that? How do I talk about it in ways that actually are true? And how do I become the kind of person who is true? Then I will be able to say meaningfully and know what I'm saying when I say that God is, is good. And in that, I think George MacDonald, whom I read for the first time as a freshman in college Bible school, I think that just gripped me. You know, that the, so I experienced deconstruction, I think by and large, I experienced it not as a losing of my faith, but a kind of loosing of my hold on my ideas. So I, I don't think there was ever any kind of existential panic for me because I had a sense that one, God is holding me and that's what matters. Two, really what's at play here is not about faith. It's about my beliefs and my grasp of my beliefs. and that's just the process of learning. And so I, I think most of the time when people talk about losing faith, my experience tells me they're not actually losing faith at all, right? They're just, they're confronting for the first time that their ideas about their beliefs about the faith are not utterly reliable and unquestionably true. And so I think a lot of it is just a, a kind of good second thought. And many of our churches don't allow second thoughts they don't allow first thoughts much less second thoughts and and so the it inevitably gets portrayed as as deconstruction and then people who don't know what they're talking about connect that to postmodernism and there you know it, it, the train quickly runs off the tracks it really does i i have to say a lot of my experience of it personally but also with with people that i know or listeners and to the show and this kind of thing quite often it isn't that they are being uh, uh, diverted by postmodern philosophy, it's that the goodness of Jesus is becoming more and more clear to them. And that the goodness of Jesus is not being reflected 
in their churches in Christianity. And so it's not a lack of faith. It's a it's a growing awareness of Jesus. I, I guess it's not true all the time. There are going to be people who are, who who no longer find even the, the person of Jesus credible. But and there are going to be some people who find the secular humanist philosophy of Nietzsche or whatever it, it, compelling. But I think we do have to pay attention how many people who are doing hashtag deconstructed, they are actually just aware of the goodness of Jesus and how that contrasts negatively with the badness of the Christianity around them. And there's something there. And I think we really need to be careful what we're doing. And somebody who cares about the goodness of Jesus is not a troublemaker, right? They cannot be a trouble. They cannot, well, they are troublemakers, but they cannot be a negative. That cannot be a negative malign influence in somebody's life. Yeah, it's just astonishment with the person of Jesus. That's why I do what I do. Is it, it just it, it just absolutely floored by the vision of God that he that he uh, discloses, and of the nature of what it means to be human, and I think uh, being answered in the same person, you know. Um, so the, the the mystery of God and the mystery of humanity um, disclosed in this one person, and I think this this is the centrifugal thing that draws you know. Chris and I and Brad and, and Julian and, uh, you know, share with a lot of our friends together, you know, is th- th- this astonishment with them. Yeah, I do one, one point not to interrupt you, Father Kim, but I think yeah, yeah, yeah. it comes up in our conversation a lot is I do think when we talk about Jesus and the first Christians, I want to emphasize the ways in which that is a fulfillment of not a deviation from the witness of Moses and the prophets that what what's happening with jesus what's happening with paul and peter and john mary the marys is is not it's not new in the sense of novel it's new in the sense that it's a realization of what abraham foresaw what moses foresaw and called for what isaiah and jeremiah and so on it it is it's a fulfillment of israel's calling a realization of Israel's being in the world, not some kind of correction against against it, right? And and I, I do think we that that is a, a theme I return to again and again because I, I I agree with Willie Jennings, who's written a lot about Christianity and racism, that actually the roots of modern racism are in ancient anti-Semitism and distancing from the Jewish people. And even though I absolutely adore the church fathers, there is a lot of anti-Jewish rhetoric and at times more than rhetoric with people, leaders who are in the position of controlling armies and dictating policies. I I do think this is a, a place where we have to be very clear that what happens in Jesus, what happens in the apostles is, as Jesus says it is, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It is a fulfillment of Israel's calling. And, you know, we have Transfiguration Sunday coming. Well, you know, it, it's the feast is Friday, right? So, um, you know, and we'll be celebrating the feast on Sunday. But, you know, I was just looking, I was just with a doing Lectio with um, a group this morning on Second uh, Peter, you know, uh, chapter 1, 13 to 21, you know, um, I'm getting I'm re- I'm getting ready to go. I'm I I it's my time to go and be with Jesus, but I want you to remember and he doesn't go to the cross, which he wasn't an eyewitness of. He doesn't go to the resurrection, but he goes to something that he actually saw himself, which was the transfiguration of Christ. And Origen commenting on Matthew 12 and this goes right with uh what you were just saying, Chris. For Moses, uh, he's talking about the transfiguration. Uh, they lifted up their eyes, the, the, the disciples, and saw Jesus only and no other. For Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophecy, have become one only in the gospel of Jesus. They have not remained three as they formerly were, but the three have become one. They're taken up into this human who's also God. Absolutely. And what what we often do instead is portray Jesus as the one who sidelines Moses and Elijah, right? Who 
who supersedes them and therefore makes them irrelevant instead of seeing, no, 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 he's the one in whom they live and move and have their being. And, 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 and with whom he's in conversation about the cross. Yeah, because we like to present Jesus as the ultimate hashtag deconstruction or hashtag liberal progressive or something like where he's he's done away with all that old stuff you don't need it anymore when that's not what's going on in the gospels or in the in the new testament text right it, it is not a simple let's destroy it all and start again kind of moment that's right yeah and i do I, that's why i think in in many ways whatever move we have toward a more toward what jens would call a a, a freer future the future god means for us is inseparable from the way we honor God's work in the past. And this, this is a very kind of American temptation to, to kind of block out the past, right? To cut ourselves off from it and to, to move into the future unencumbered by what has happened. And I do think that in the practice of deconstruction, people can easily come to think that's what they need to do, right? That because of the abuses they've seen, because of the neglect and the, and the confusion, all, all that has gone wrong, that what's needed is a kind of radical separation from the past, when in fact what's, I think, needed is, is an accounting of the past in which we can celebrate what should be celebrated, right? We can, we can receive the gifts that are there and recognize the kind of through line, right? That, that what we are realizing now about the goodness of Jesus was in fact always present. We just weren't able to hear it in part because people were obscuring it. But that, that's who Jesus has always been, right? This is who the people of God is, have always, when they're true to themselves, this is who the people of God have, have always been. And I, I think that human beings need that kind of, a, a sense of historical continuity. I need to know that who I am today is in some ways in communion with who I was yesterday and in communion with who these people I love or don't love are and were yesterday. So I, I think that's, that's often missing in conversations about deconstruction, at least in my circles, that the need to account for the past well, tell the whole truth about it. I mean, an, an unanalyzed assumption about freedom or liberty here, I think. I mean, you, you both Americans, you both, Chris, you just brought it up yourself. Can we talk a little bit about this idea of liberty? What, what you think, I mean, what, what, when an American Christian hears the word liberty, what are they hearing? And is it different than what, a first century church father, early church person would hear when they hear the word freedom or liberty. What's going on here? I mean, I'll, I'll let Father Ken obviously speak for himself, but yes, it's different. In fact, I'm not even sure that they're not mutually exclusive, that they're, they're, I think they're contradictory. I think what most people in our circles, my circles, hear when they hear liberty is unrestrictedness, absolute unrestrictedness, unrestrictedness yeah. as an end in itself. Freedom means freedom from all influences apart from my own will, which is self-grounded. Yes. So you're self-made. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that that is absolutely at odds with what I think scripture and the church teaches us about what freedom actually is, which is, first of all, not, not self-grounded, but grounded in the life of God, the giving of God, and is also not unrestrictedness, but full openness to the influence of God, so that what we see in Jesus is not a will that's free in the sense that it's liberated from all other influences apart from his own ego. What we see in Jesus is perfect openness to the Father. I see, I do only what I see the Father doing. He, he is always, the, the Father's will is transparent to him, and so he, and so he does it naturally. I mean, this is Maximus Confessor Oh, and, I, and I think that's essentially right. So I think freedom is do the will of God. There's a wonderful line in Iris Murdoch in her book, The Sovereignty of the Good, in which she says that true freedom, the only freedom that matters, is freedom from fantasy, found in the realism of compassion. It's freedom from, from fantasy found in the realism of compassion. That's, that's real freedom. But that's not what most Americans mean no. by liberty. No, and it's it, the opposite, isn't it? It's the fantasy of self-actualization, uh, the fantasy of Atlas shrugging off the burdens of the world. It's that kind of libertarian. Yeah, it's, it's, it's handwritten. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. 
which is the exact opposite. I mean, one thing that drives me absolutely nuts on the 4th of July, which will earn any follower of my on Instagram, anybody who posts one of these pictures will instantly be unfollowed by me, which is a picture of an American flag. And underneath, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Oh, I got you. And, yeah. and you just think, wow, that's like you said, Chris, it's the exact opposite, actually. The, the sort of freedom being being fetishized on, by that flag is the exact opposite of what the followers of Jesus thought freedom meant, right? Yeah, and I will say, even though I think I have philosophical differences with the American founding fathers, on political terms, that notion of liberty makes a kind of sense, like within the context of the conversation they were having. Right. It's a political yeah, exactly. It's a political term, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and it is, there is a conversation to be had about the wisdom of their vision politically, but the bleeding of that into Christian theology, not just Christian theology, but into Christian prayer and Christian preaching, it should sicken us. Yeah, Jen's you know, frequently said, you know, it's not freedom from, you know, the, the Holy Spirit makes us free for each other, not from. And uh, of course, you know, he was, you know, penultimately, he's talking about the relationship between the father and the son. They're not free from each other, but the spirit makes them free for each other. You know, is if that's true for them, of course, it's true for, you know, for us. Um, so it's a fr the freedom here is is a freedom to align with the grain of the universe, with the life of God or with the spirit of creation. I mean, what is this? Is this is this what's going on that? Well, the only freedom is the free, you know, only true freedom is the freedom of, of uh, doing and being as God does and is, you know. But so. to say that meaningfully, and this is, this is where this gets hard, it's not simple anymore. And, and remember, most of the people we're around, I'm around anyway, once it's not simple anymore, it, they're indifferent to it, right? So it's hard to have conversations like this. But the truth is, I think, that in order to say meaningfully that freedom is to do the will of God, you have to have a robust doctrine of God as something other than one more being. God's not one more person in my life who happens to be the most important person. You know, I saw the other day, I don't want to draw attention to who said it, but it was a, a theologian of, of some recognition who says, no longer living, but someone worth reading. But anyway, he says that sin comes into the world because Adam loves God more than he loves, I mean, he loves his wife more than he loves God. No, that's not the problem. It's never, um, you never love God more. It's not that doing God's will means God's the most important person in my life and I choose him over against everyone else. God is the truth of reality. So in choosing God, I'm choosing what's best for me and what's best for my wife and what's best for my children, what's best for my neighbors. As long as you think of God as one more being who happens to be the most powerful and therefore should be the most important. The biggest bully on the block. Then all of your theology will be destructive and oppressive. Yes, yes. Because yes. that's just, that's just a giving God's name to an idol. And it, is, it will end in the same kind of destructive behaviors that, we, that the prophets condemned, right? You will offer your children to this idol. You will cut your body in the name of this idol. So I, I, I think it's true, and I want to be as clear as I can, I think it is true that the only freedom is doing God's will. But unless you understand that in saying that, we're not talking about one more being who happens to be the most important, but the ground and the goal of reality itself, it won't, it still won't work, right? Like it, it only is freeing if you realize that God is the truth, and that the truth is good, and that the truth is freeing. That's just its nature. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do it for me. Right. right. And it's not, that's not Jesus, right. And it's not Jesus saying, if you'll do it to them, I'll really like it and reward you. He's saying what you're doing to them, you are doing, doing it, to it to me. That is the reality of things. That's not, you know, it's not the way I would like things to be. It's not Jesus saying, I would prefer it if it went like this. He's telling you, this is how it is. And that, and this is, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus saying, oh man, if I, if I had my druthers, as we say in Oklahoma, this is what it would be. He's telling you, this is the way God's life works. This is reality. And this is where Chris, this 
this gets back to the you know what the conversation Chris and I had that you know we, uh, you know I, I we were talking I, you know we were talking about the for for instance the command to kill, you know not to kill right it is is not something where God's saying. You know, you don't do this, but I do this whenever I, I want. It's like, you know, the father who says, do, do, don't do as I do, do as I say. But this is actually a disclosure of God's own life, you know, to us, you know, don't kill because that's who, that's who he is, you know. And uh, so then, of course, the sermon starts to make all kinds of sense once you, you know, understand that that's true. Um, but in fact, we, you know, um, believe that G God is a, you know, killer as too many people do. Um, and so then we got into the conversation and we were talking about Eucharist, we we're getting the conversation of sacrifice and, you know, Chris is really, um, I, I feel like has, um, you know, a really important, just not, not, not only for people who are deconstructing, but people in the church about, uh, sacrifice, we we're talking about how things are in continuity, but there is also some sort of transfigured discontinuity on this question of transfiguration, or excuse me, question of sacrifice. And we were talking about, you know, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time by the blood of patriots and tyrants, which is Jefferson, of course, you know. And, All right, come um, on, let's interrogate this phrase. The tree of liberty must be refreshed by the blood of tyrants and patriots. And well, we're just saying, you know, the, the tree of life, you know, does not require the no. blood of the martyrs and is not refreshed by their blood nor by the blood of tyrants you know uh, it's not refreshed by by any of that so the martyrs um don't die to, i mean i'm just gonna let chris talk about this but you know the martyrs don't die to accomplish anything uh their deaths are not useful this is chris you know basically nor because god needs their sacrifice god desires the death of no one um, desires not our sacrifices, nor because God is glorified in their deaths. No, the martyrs die because violence is the currency of the powers of this world. And violence is what the powers trust. Tell us more about sacrifice then. I mean, you're, you're just talking about the Eucharist, which is the sacrifice. So what, Chris, where, where, wither sacrifice then? Where does that fit in our Christian imaginations if God doesn't require it? Yeah, I, I think that there's a way, and well, let me let me say this really quickly, just in terms of the Jefferson quote. There's there's a deep, deep irony there that 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 quote comes from a letter that he wrote in 1790, I think, somewhere. He's in Paris, and he's there, of course, if I remember rightly, he's he has Sally with him, right? He has his slave lover with him when he writes it. And that particular comment comes as a response to an uprising in Massachusetts by American citizens, U.S. citizens, who are upset about taxation from the U.S. government, right? So there's a, there's a kind of acting out on this local level of the American Revolution, what the American Revolution had been just a few years before. And that comment by Jefferson is actually meant as a dismissal of the seriousness of their complaint. I mean, in fact, I think this is off the top of my head, so I could be mistaken. But a line or two before that comment about the tree of liberty must be renewed with the blood of martyrs, he, he makes a comment about, you know, what's what's the death of a few people every few generations? I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter, right? Like, I mean, there's a kind of deep callousness about fatalism, for sure. Exactly. There's there, there's a kind of fatalism to it, and a and a kind of pragmatic ends justifies means attitude and I, I i bring that up to say i think we often imagine that that's how god runs the universe right that, that god is actually saying you know you just got to have some debt you know you got to break some eggs to make an omelet right i mean you're going to have to have some deaths to bring about life and, and Moloch, that's what Moloch wants its babies thrown down the ravine every once in a while yeah so i mean there's the kind of caricatured version of it but even more seriously if you press people it does come to this pretty quickly for a lot of people, this sense that God really needs death and needs the taking of life in order to make the giving of life meaningful for us. So a lot of, and this is not just, you know, Joe the plumber. I mean, these are, here I'm talking about other priests and bishops and theologians, wise men and women otherwise, who, who believe if you push them, 
that at the end of the day, none of the good really matters if you don't have the bad to contrast it with. And that even God himself really needs death and the taking of life, evil, in order to make the good God wants to make. I, I think that's fundamentally absolutely wrong, right? That's not true about God. That's precisely why God is adorable, is astonishing, is glorious, because he doesn't need evil to do good. He, he creates from nothing, right? And David Bentley Hart, I think, is exactly right that the doctrine of creation from nothing is a moral doctrine. It's not a description about the beginning of things. It's a statement about the fact that God does good. He doesn't need bad to do it. He doesn't need the bad that happens to me or bad that he does to others to do it. And, and so I think if you frame it that way, then you realize, and this is what I think scripture was saying all along, God does not want sacrifice. Sacrifice is one, God accommodating to what we think we need, right? So I think you can see this, and this is what I think the book of Hebrews is about. We don't have to, to do a deep dive here, but I think the book of Hebrews really is kind of working out the problem of two sacrifices, the sacrifice of Cain and the sacrifice of Abel, and that essentially both are seen to be problematic, and that Hebrews is not saying this as some kind of Christian correcting to Jewish mistakes. Hebrews is recognizing this is what scripture was saying all along, that neither Cain's sacrifice nor Abel's sacrifice will do what needs to be done, that Cain's sacrifice is a kind of lie because it doesn't acknowledge that blood has been shed, right? So in Genesis, the, the curse has come, the ground is cursed, and blood has been shed. There are garments, right, covering Adam and Eve in their nakedness. And so Cain's sacrifice ignores that reality. He tries to go to the ground as if nothing has happened. And Abel acknowledges that there has been violence, right? The, and, and he offers these sacrifices. Not that God wants them, but it is the truth about their past. This is what has happened. God does honor that in a way, that kind of truth-telling. What's striking is Abel does not offer that sacrifice on Cain's behalf. There's no intercession to it. And Cain does not want the truth. He resents his brother's blessings. And so right at the very beginning of this post-Eden story, post-fall story, we have the story of brothers who are really turned against each other. One who's offering a sacrifice that is more truthful, but is not merciful. And one who is trying to offer a sacrifice that is neither truthful nor merciful. And all of scripture, I think, from that point is a working out of how does God save us from these sacrifices? And I think Hebrews recognizes this, that God wants prayer, but not sacrifice. And God wants mercy more than anything else, right? I, I would rather, and again, scripture is filled with this. I would have mercy and not sacrifice. And this is precisely what Jesus comes to teach. This is precisely what he lives. This is precisely how he dies. And all of that, I think Hebrews recognizes, is what the scriptures were saying all along. And we had substituted a sacrificial system for the work of mercy. And so we're false, right? That's not a Jewish mistake. It's a human mistake. The witness of the Jewish prophets is that this is not what God wants. And so in Jesus, God comes near and puts an end to all of that. And I think that, obviously, we're skipping a lot of details here, but I think that's what Hebrews recognizes about what the whole of Scripture teaches us. And whether the, what, what about laying down your life for your friends? Greater love has no one than this. So is that not a sacrifice? Is that not a laying down of your own rights or? Yeah, and, and all of this stuff, right, is, I think, cuts in a lot of different directions. Uh, Kate Sonderager's second volume of her systematic, she, she tries to make sacrifice definitive for the life of God. In fact, she says the processions of God are the movement of sacrifice. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's wrong. I think it's deeply, deeply wrong. But there is this passage, I mean, just gorgeous passage in her second volume, in which she talks about how when we see someone make sacrifices for others that they love, we recognize something holy. And she talks, you know, about the man whose wife gets dementia, and he cares for her day after day, even though she no longer recognizes him. 
he, he's changing her diapers and putting her to bed and giving her showers and feeding her. And she's perhaps you know, spewing hate at him, doesn't recognize him, totally lost to him. He's making a sacrifice. He could just kind of move on, right? He could just get on with his life, put her in a home. But there's something about that that's deeply moving. And I think that's right. And in that sense, there is something sacrificial about the life of God in that it's willing to take, to go to great lengths, to take great pains to bring love to bear on us. The point I would want to make, though, is that the pain, the, the death, the suffering, that's not what God wants. It's not necessary for the right it's not essential working of God the universe. Is. Yeah, right. So one right. way of, and this may be too cute, but one way of saying it is God does not want suffering, but God wants to be with those who are suffering right? and is therefore willing to suffer. So Jesus is not, and this is why I think it's important that in that we see him in Gethsemane not wanting to drink the cup. Like if he if he wanted to drink it, that would be masochistic. And you know, Rard talks about this, I think, rightly. That's not what's happening there. He's not eager to suffer. He is willing to suffer. And so I think, yes, there are places in our lives that that should be marked by sacrifice, but not because the suffering itself somehow leverages God or moves God. I mean, God is, God is not kinky. You know, he's not driven by our pain. And I think we, we need to, it may seem like a fine distinction, but I think it's an important one to make. Father Ken, how does that work for you when you have to undertake the liturgy, the Eucharistic liturgies every week or every few days? I'm not quite sure how often you do them, but how does this language of sacrifice or this understanding of sacrifice work itself out in the Eucharist table? It is the the meal is a recapitulation, you know, of uh, the cross. Um, you know, Jesus says, you know, do this, you know, to remember me. Pointedly, he doesn't say to preach. I mean, he does command us to preach, but he doesn't say to preach to remember him, or, or uh, for that for that matter, to sing to remember him, you know, or remember the the sacrifice. It's you know, you do this meal, you know. And, uh, you know, Chris and I were talking about this, you know, you, uh, I think this is one of the reasons that, uh, you know, churches become so optional to people, um, you know, and uh, it is, we got away from this, the one thing you can't do, like I can turn on a podcast and listen to a sermon, you know, turn the t TV on, listen to a sermon, I can sing in my car, I can sing while I'm working, you know, and so forth, things. But you you have to gather for for a meal. You, you don't do a meal by yourself, you know. And all of us are bringing. God God doesn't um, you know consecrate grape berries you know cluster of grape berries or a bushel of wheat, you know. He takes our work, our culture, our you know what it is that we have brought and made of the grapes and made of the grain, our bread and and wine which both are crushed, right, in order to become this offering to God. Um, and so th this is a symbol uh, of the reality that also God is crushed, right, for the life of the world um, by our evil, um, but also that we together uh, become one loaf by, you know, joining one another in this meal and also being crushed, you know, um, to become, you know, not people who are free from everybody else, but people who are free for the poor and the prisoner and the stranger uh, and the sick um, and uh, free for God. And um, so it, this whole meal is Thanksgiving for what God has given um, and not just for what God has given, but what we have made of what he's given um, and ourselves to him and in entering into the sacrifice of God for the love, uh, life of the world and love of the world. And, uh, together with the angels, together with uh, all those who are uh, Abraham, um, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not the God of the dead, everyone together in this present moment, um, which joins all of these things, you know, uh, in one meal. You cannot do that by yourself. The great cloud of witnesses from Hebrews as well, then. This, this is, to me, is the... A critical point you not only can't do it by yourself 
it is not done for yourself. Right? So I go back Father Ken, to your chapel service. I, th I think that that experience you had at ORU is a kind of parable for, I think, pretty much all American Christians, at least all American Christians in evangelical type churches, that if we were Eucharistic, we would realize that our worship is always intercessory. Like whatever we're doing, we're doing on behalf of those who are not present, right? We're doing it on behalf of the world, right? That the sacrifice we are raising to God, the thanksgiving we're giving to God is in thanksgiving for the sacrifice for the life of the world. So if in that chapel service, the worship leader had realized, all right, so out there in the world, there's this horrific tragedy. Why are we here singing? precisely for the life of that world, then that completely alters what's happened in the moment of song, right? So it's, it's, I think there is a way in which, to go back to our deconstruction conversation, you might say, it would be easy to say, I don't want to be a part of a church that ignores the death or ignores the scandal or ignores the catastrophe and so walk away. But what we need instead are people who say, no, I'm going to be present here in the way the church is called to be present, which is to say, we're going to sing this song, but we're not singing it for ourselves, right? We're not singing this because we want to, or because it feels good, or because it's a blessing to me. It's precisely as intercession. And in anything we do in worship that isn't framed as intercession is going to be wrong, right? I mean, it's just, it's going to be false to the spirit of the Christ who's present as bread and wine on the table. And I'm going to say something, you know, I, I hope it scandalizes me, so I hope it scandalizes other people. But, you know, that this this offering that we're making, this sacrifice that we're participating in, um, which is a transfiguration of our violence into something that actually and of the death that we give God, which he alone transfigures into life without end for his world and for everyone in it. Um, that we're offering this for the, those who are you know, deconstructing, those who are running from, from God, um, the victims of tyrants. But also, uh, let me just make it real, um, we're offering it for those who are being oppressed by the cartels and by the people who are running the drug cartels. We're offering this on the, on the behalf of prisoners and those who oppress and imprison. You know, um, we're offering it on the behalf of the poor and those impoverished and the corporate heads that are driving, um, you know, uh, poverty and driving uh, uh, ecological disaster and so forth and so on. Um, it's being offered on behalf of everyone, uh, our worship um, to God. So, Well, it's this kind of expansive humanistic in the very best sense of the word the universal loving open-armed embrace of the eucharistic table this is exactly the kind of stuff i was hoping to get out of both of you ken chris i am so glad that you joined us to the tent and i and i feel like i'd like to ask you to come back again one day and we'll, we'll see what sticks in your craw and when and work it out with us can you work it out in the tent rather than just don't keep it to yourselves can you come and do it with us that would be really fun uh but, before we go, can we just quickly, I didn't set you up ahead of time, but I know you both have written books and you, you have various outlets. If, if listeners want to know more about you and your, your words, where, where can we send them? I mean, obviously I'm on social media. That's probably a place to get started. I do have a website, which is just cewgreen.com. How do you say it, Father Ken? C-E-W green. C-E-W. You got to bring the Pentecostal. So that's that's a place to, to okay. go. And and of course, you know, I'll just do what he's you know, he's just a beautiful brother. Um and, and first of all, I mean most of our conversations are because Chris says things and I I have to under I, I just need to know how he thinks the way he's thinking. And so we have these conversations. Um and he helps me figure things out. But I, I I'll tell you, you know, sanctifying imagination. Um, you know, uh there's a book on the uh scriptures um is mm -hmm. and, and he's got a book called uh, surprised by god um which is brilliant also um some books on uh jensen 
uh, has a book coming out from Baylor um, uh, on uh, aesthetic Christology, which is called All Things Beautiful, which is a wonderful trip through paintings and films and uh, novels and scripture, um, all looking for the beauty of Jesus um, in it. Um, so there, I mean, Chris has a books. Chris has the books yeah. out there as well as the website. I love it, Bob I, Ken, be, that you, you, you are laying down your life for your friend and you're using your plug time well, to plug Chris's I mean, books. I love that. No, you know. <laughs> Greater I mean, love has can, no one than this, right? <laughs> people can, you know, put Kenneth Tanner in Google and they'll find more things than they want to read. But anyway, uh, um, and I am working on a book. It's called The Vulnerable God. Okay. Uh, just vul- not, There's no article. Vulnerable God. Becoming human as God is human. Um, so hopefully that's out in the end of next year. And, well, uh, but uh, Chris is the published serious author here. Um, so anyway, oh, I'm, I'm good, sure this a really good last. preacher. Yeah, this is not the last we've heard of, of either of you, I'm sure, and I hope. Uh, uh, Father Ken, uh, Dr. Chris, thank you for coming on the program, and I hope to see you again soon. Farewell. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Sue. Thanks, brother. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.